When it comes to West Coast music, Tommy Funderburk has been an icon for decades. If you're familiar with Airplay, The Front, What If, Richard Marks, Steve Lukather, REO Speedwagon, Starship, and Yes, then you've heard either his voice or his compositions over the years. He and past Inside Music Cast guest Bruce Geich collaborated to form a songwriting partnership called King of Hearts in the late 80s, with their debut album loaded with West Coast gems. After several delays, it was finally released in Japan. It was a hit and launched them on a successful Japanese tour. Today, they are collaborating again as King of Hearts and will soon be touring Japan, bringing the duo's musicianship to the stage once more. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Tommy Funderburg. Hey, Tommy, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Yeah, good to have you today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's always good to have some Southern charm uh, <laughs> in the middle of winter um, here in Inside Music Cast. And because you are a, pretty much a, a Southern guy, born born and raised in uh, in Charlotte. And you, over the years, it took you to L.A., you went to Nashville. And I think it's almost coming full circle, isn't it, Tommy? I mean, you're, you're back in almost where it, where it all started out, right? Yeah, I, I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then moved when I was going into high school to a little town called Newberry. Newberry. If you ever, if you ever saw the Andy Griffith show, yeah. I kind of moved to that place. Wow, wow. And, and um, that uh, opened my eyes. I had learned about the Beatles and a whole other world, and then moving to South Carolina, I learned all about something called soul music. Yeah, so That yeah. opened my, my eyes to a different world, and... That's where I got a chance to work with a lot of different people. We we had bands, and a lot of things were just growing and beginning to happen at that time. So we got a chance to open for a lot of artists, uh, playing in uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and Ocean Drive. Those are fine memories. You know, there's something special about the sound of of, of uh, you know the southern talent that comes out of there. You know, we people have talked about years of uh, of, uh, of your neighborhood, similar to most Muscle Shoals and and what's happening down in, in Georgia and in your terrain. And it's the musically. You know, what is it about the the, the South that it, it brings uh, almost tradition or a, a different vibe that you can get that you can't get up in the you know, northeast or something like that. Is just a, there's just something different about it. What would that be? Well, I think you we got to look at the, all the influence that happened to people in the South. I mean, uh, we had a, a very big gospel influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, blues really, you know, came from the South, moved up north to Chicago way. But uh, we just had a great passion for music and a great passion for rhythm, and uh, uh, you know that contributed a lot to the the unique sound of the South. Yeah. A lot of people took a lot of people took that uh, you know R and B sound. A lot of bands began to incorporate that. All my brothers stuff used to incorporate that into their sound. Sure, that was the beginning of a lot of good stuff. Yeah, really. Well, let's let's go back to the North Carolina days when you were growing up. I mean, you started singing at a very young age. Uh, even as a, a teenager, you began touring with you know Otis Redding and the Isleys and so many others. And did your parents realize that the crazy music biz was your destiny, or did they did they not want you to even attempt going that route? Yeah. Well, I, I started earlier in Charlotte. Uh, I, I used to watch um, Walt Disney Channel, and I saw the. Uh, being a boys choir, and I thought, boy, I like that. They seem great. And uh, there was an opportunity when I was in the second grade to audition for the Charlotte Boys Choir. They're actually on RCA Records and made some records and toured and stuff with Spike Jones, things like that. Yeah. Wow. But I joined, I joined uh, the the uh, choir and toured with them for several years. We would do the summers. We would travel up and down the the uh, 
East Coast. I got a chance to play a command performance for the Queen of England at the Old Madison Square Garden. Wow. So that kind of gave me a feel for being in uh, the entertainment business. My mom was uh, supportive. I think my dad wanted me to just pay attention to school. But <laughs> um, I learned all about the Beatles and about shoe music and, and stuff like that in Charlotte. Uh, I didn't really understand um, what real music was until it moved to the south and moved further south. Uh, and uh, I got to join a little band, and we became the house band for a place in a little place called Ocean Drive, South Carolina. And I got to be the, the top 40 band that would play the, you know, the opening set. We used to open for Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Jackie Wilson. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, basically, you name it. Uh, I toured Percy Sledge for about four months until Jeez. somehow Percy ran off of the money one day. But uh, <laughs> that's, another sto- that's another story. Yeah. But that was my education into... Uh, really fantastic soul music. That's where I learned about stacks and bowls and, and all that and yeah. Wilson Pickett. And, you know, it was just being created at that time. So we were just kind of part of it. We didn't realize how great it would become, but, uh, I got that, that chance to learn. And of course I always listened to music and appreciated it. And when I went to college, uh, I thought I was going to be some high school history teacher, <laughs> but, uh, I started in bands and we used to play and, I probably played for every frat party in the in the, the whole southeast. <laughs> uh, you know, we we had uh, we got some stories that uh, just you can't even repeat on the radio. <laughs> I'm but, sure you uh, did. <laughs> we we toured and did a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and, uh, and then uh, when I was a, a sophomore in college, uh, I was introduced to some guys who were writing their own music, hmm. and we formed our own band and. We uh, opened for a gospel singer named Andre Crouch a couple of times. Look at that. And Andre Crouch's friends, uh, near Jimmy Groshio, we in Chicago. Our band sounded a little bit like Chicago. We had horns. And uh, we kept thinking, wow, we're going to get a record deal from South Carolina. <laughs> uh, and uh, Andre kept saying, you know, your band should come out. Your band should come out. But they didn't. They were married or had families or whatever. I did. I decided uh, I graduated from the University of South Carolina as a high school history teacher, and I thought, you know, I've been given this invitation to go to uh, uh, Los Angeles by actually a, a, a contemporary Christian artist named Keith Green. Oh, and Keith, yeah. Yeah, and Keith kept saying, Tommy, come, Tommy, come. And uh, he brought me out there. I was introduced to Andre Crouch again, and I, uh, I joined Andre's band when I got out to... Uh, in California, and that kind of began opening doors for me. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. You 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 bring it up because apparently, you know, your your college days, of course. The, I believe that your band was called. Is, was it the Boston Team Party? Is that is that what it was called? Oh my gosh! What yeah, you, no. yeah, you guys are yeah, we're we're going to dig it a little bit. I mean, but but is it with uh, with that band that you were um, actually uh, uh, hooked up with uh, with Andre, or was that not no, was that the, different altogether? The, the, the Tea Party was just uh, that was your college was band. One of my incarnations of the funky <laughs> bunch to the Boston Tea Party, okay. the, the velocity of sound. <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> I don't know. We we got, did a number of things, but the the band that uh, really got serious about music. They were mostly they were music majors from the University of South mm-hmm. Carolina. Okay, and then a, a good rock and roll guitar player, a good rock guitar player. Yeah, uh, and we called ourselves Sanctuary. Okay, the Sanctuary was uh, uh, we were gonna do all kinds of things. We had great ideas in our mind, 
but uh, they didn't uh, make it all the way to California. But uh, they got me my start. Is it true that your band Sanctuary, that you guys opened for Andre Crouch, is that correct? Yes, we did. We opened for Andre a couple of times, and uh, I became friends with Andre and friends with his drummer, Bill Maxwell. Yeah, okay. And yeah. Uh, Bill, Bill uh, really was uh, uh, the first person that uh, really helped me out in uh, L.A. because I, uh, I got out to L.A., and this is for all you young musicians who want to take a flying leap. You, you never know where it might take you. Yeah. Um, I uh, confirmed with Keith we were going to meet up. I, he was going to meet me at LAX, and I got to LAX and called Keith and couldn't get Keith to answer the telephone. <laughs> so I was at LAX. This was not looking good. So oh, no. I was on the the phone at LAX uh-huh. listening to the white zone as parking for several hours, and the only other person that I really knew was Bill Maxwell. And uh, fortunately... Bill's wife said, oh, Tommy, I think you better call Billy at the studio. <laughs> so it turned out that Keith had uh, kind of forgotten that you were supposed to pick me up and had gone on tour. And <laughs> so uh, I met Andre and the guys at the studio, and uh-huh. we became friends, and Andre uh, befriended me and said, hey, wow, Tommy, you know, you can sing. Would you uh, like to sing a little bit on the record? And that started uh, a relationship. That's how I became part of the disciples for a brief period wow. of time. That's wow. cool. That that's amazing. You know, for all those that may have gotten um, were raised in in church music and back then the early gospel days, the the disciples. Uh, I tell you that they were really foundational as to everything that's happening in in CCM today. And and isn't isn't it sad about the huge loss of of Andre? Uh, you know, um, you know, several weeks back. You know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sad. Look, Andre was really a wonderful. Wonderful person, mm-hmm. Andre was Andre was incredible. Uh, Andre realized that day that um, I, they knew that Keith had forgotten me because they knew that Keith was on the road, mm-hmm. and so they let me hang at the studio all day. And then they told me, "Hey, look, uh, the session's pretty much over. You want to just drop you off at Griffith Park? You can uh, sleep on the benches there." And <laughs> they were kidding. Uh, unfortunately, Andre said, "Boy, you don't have a place to stay, do?" And I said, well, I could get a hotel room. And he said, you know, you're, you're welcome to stay at my house for a few days. And that turned into a good relationship with Andre. Andre was really gracious to me. Uh, I did join his group and uh, learned a lot about music. But um, it, I, I just got a chance to see what a, a, a really gifted person Andre was. Uh, God gave Andre a tremendous amount of talent. Uh, to the point, I don't know if you know that, uh, you know, Andre... When he was growing up, they were so poor that they could not afford a piano. Hmm. And uh, Andre used to practice on a cardboard cutout. Look at that! Wow, it was a picture picture of keys. Wow. And Andre, if you ever talk about the, is is music a gift or is it something you learn? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you can learn. You can learn the notes and you can learn phrasing and stuff. But Andre never learned how to write music. Andre just had a gift of writing, and uh, uh, he would. Uh, Sometimes wake up in the middle of the night, and in the morning he would have this gorgeous song that uh, he was, you know, singing into a little cassette player. Yeah. And um, I, I just really appreciated him for uh, what a, a funny person he was, what a kind person he was, and what a gifted talent he was. 
that's amazing. Well, thinking about, you know, the time when you set foot in L.A., uh, you probably began meeting people in the industry right away. And mm-hmm. tell us about some of the people like David Foster. How, how did you meet him? Well, the shortest version of that story is that um, Andre <laughs> called me uh, and said, Hey, Tommy, I need to talk to you about going to South Africa. Uh-huh. And I thought, wow, South Africa, I've never been out of the country. That's going to be incredible. And when we met, he said, there is kind of a problem. You see, it is illegal for black people and white people to be on the same stage. Yeah. So, unfortunately, you can't go to South Africa. And I thought, wow, the only people that I know are leaving L.A. <laughs> and so I uh, was here in uh, Los Angeles for a couple of weeks. I had just been here for a couple of weeks. And yeah. I never had to go. And I was faced with uh, thinking, have I made a mistake coming to Los Angeles? I don't know anybody here. And uh, I remember that there was a, somebody had told me there was a, a church that had some music sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes they had concerts on Saturday night. So I had to make a choice. Um, did I want to go to the club down the street, because they had a band, or did I want to go to this church that had a keyboard player playing some music? Mm-hmm. And I thought, do I want to go to church on a Saturday night, or do I go to the club? (laughs) Church or club? club? I don't know. I decided to go to this church and see what it was all about. And uh, when I got uh, into the the gathering, everybody was seated together, and the um, preacher said, hey, everybody stand up and introduce yourself. And um, (laughs) the two men next to me, one was named Robert Wright. Hmm. And the other was Verdine White, but I didn't know that at the time. Wow. Wow. And so they said, so Tommy, what are you, oh yeah, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm great. So Tommy, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I sing. And they said, oh, that's great. Tommy, you sing, who do you sing with? And I said, well, I sing with Andre Crouch. And they said, yeah, right. <laughs> I sing with Andre Crouch. <laughs> and, they, and, and they realized that maybe I actually did. And they said, well, Tommy, here's our number. You know, we're in the music business. Maybe we'll call you for a session sometime. Wow. And I thought, yeah, wow, a session, that'd be great. So uh, I thought nothing more of it, but uh, that Monday night I did get a call. And uh, I got a call to come sing at a session, and um, it turned out that um, we were singing on a group called Pockets. Pockets? That, uh, Richard was, uh, Robert Wright was producing a group called Pockets. Okay, okay. What label they're on. But... Uh, uh, we were singing, and they said, uh, well, we can't finish the session because our tenor didn't show up. And I'm a tenor, and I didn't know anybody in town. I didn't know what I was doing. But they said, we can't finish the session because, you know, we don't have a tenor. And I said, well, you know, <clears throat> I sing tenor. And they said, oh, everybody, listen, Tommy has got to do Philip Bailey's part. Tommy <laughs> thinks he can sing like Philip Bailey. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> I had no idea. And they all got in the studio to listen to Tommy make a fool of himself, but uh, I sang the parts, and I could sing the notes, and uh, it just happened that there was um, a young lady there named Allie Willis. And okay. uh, Allie, you might know, has written uh, September. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sure. That's Huge. A bunch of hit songs. And Allie was there, and she said, hey, who's the white guy out there singing? <laughs> and uh, I... <laughs> <laughs> she, she just said, hey, you want to be in a band? And I said, 
Nah, maybe. And she said, you ever heard of a guy named Jay Graydon? And I said, oh, yeah, I know Jay. He's <laughs> Steely Dan. They yeah. said, you ever heard of David Foster? And I said, no, not, not really. And they said, well, here, here's the telephone. Here they are. And the next day, I was at Jay's house and uh, sang some, and they liked it, and uh, we decided to make a band out of it. That's amazing. They had tried other, they had tried other singers, and I was the one they chose, and I joined David, so we made the Airplay uh, a trio in the contract. Uh, Airplay was David Foster, Jay Gray, and Tommy Funderburk. Yeah. yeah. And um, that started me in the, in the music business. That's funny you mentioned that uh, Allie Wilson, I mean, because we were just talking about that earlier, weren't we, Rick? We were talking about the uh, track that Steve Percaro wrote called The Little Things that uh, Allie uh, co-wrote with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she just so many hits, especially with uh, when, with Earth, Wind, and Fire. So that that's amazing. Right place in the right time, right? Well, you know, Allie's got a great story about September. Does she? You know, she told her story. You know, she's Allie's a great lyricist, and uh, according to her, she was uh, in the studio and had not quite finished all the lyrics to the song. Hmm. And so Maurice, or one of the guys, said, we're just going to go, body out. <laughs> and she goes, no, 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 don't say body out. Let me finish the song. Let me finish. She goes, no, no, we're just going to go body out. And she was just, she said, I was on my knees going, please don't sing body out. But now, now she loves body out. I'm sure she does. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, neat. She loves it. That's neat how you met uh, Jay and and worked uh, with uh, with David on on the Airplay project. Um, you know, this was yeah, a big... we, spent, we spent a lot of time. That was um, I will appreciate that uh, Jay said to me. You know, as as you may know, Jay is very particular about getting it right. Mm-hmm. He said, "Tommy, I promise you that in the future, if you ever go back and listen to the record, you're never ever going to say I wish I'd done that one more time." Yeah, and he's right. <laughs> we yeah. did it. Yeah, and we were happy with it, and. Uh, that's it. Well, this must have been a really huge turning point for you. I mean, you know, you were now vocalist for Foster and Graydon, being backed by, you know, heavy hitter musicians because they had all the best guys, you know, Jerry Hay and was singing with Champlin. And, and uh, you know, did it hit you how big this really was for you at that time? I, I don't think you realize at the time this mm-hmm. was that big. I mean, I got to tell you, when I, I first heard some of the tracks, I think they played me one song called Sweet Body, and it was unfinished. Mm-hmm. But to me, it sounded like if you had married Boston with Steely Dan, that was kind of good enough for me. He told me Steely Dan, and I think it was. And you had Jeff and Luke and everybody playing on it. It was yeah. great stuff. Yeah, and it was it was wonderful. And we always thought it could be uh, could be really great. And it did open the doors to you know maybe introduce me to Bill and to Tom Kelly and to a bunch of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know that uh, Airplay project. I mean, you guys turned out tunes like. After the Loving Is Gone, you know, nothing you can do about it. And I mean, th- you guys were really on a roll at that time, man. That, that's pretty, pretty amazing entry into the market, if you would. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, on the song After the Love, um, uh, David was, was traveling some during the finishing of the vocals. So Jay and I did a lot of work together uh, at his studio. But uh, the song After the Love, uh, David and I did. And, and actually, I sang that just in a few takes. And um, the the others were quite a different thing, but after the love was very different. It's kind of a special vocal. Bill sings a lot of the chorus, and I yeah. did all the verses. On that. Mm-hmm. Jay Graydon once said that the that the thing about airplay is that it's so overproduced. And and I wanted to ask you, does that make sense to you? And and uh, tell us about what you think he's referring to as it being overproduced. 
Well, um, maybe maybe Jay might feel differently if it was remixed. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think at the at yeah. the time, you know, we were working in his studio, and sometimes when you're in your own environment, your ears get adjusted to something. It probably be, would have helped the uh, album had we mixed it in some other place. But uh-huh. uh, you know, look, I mean, what are you going to say? That's that's kind of where everybody was heading yeah. at that moment. Yeah, and and uh, if you've got um, the the chance to put uh, I, look, I've, I've dug around. A few, uh, a couple of years ago, and found some cassette tapes uh-huh. of some outtakes of airplay. And I'm telling you, Jay's guitars were just seriously raunchy and incredible. Yeah, yeah. You know when you when you mix things in stereo and overdub and stuff, it tends to smooth out. But look, you know, airplay was um, a special project, and it still stands up. It is what it is. It's a great. Great collection of songs, but uh, great players, and you know they don't call it the Bible of West Coast music for nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, Tommy, if there was one thing that you garnered from, you know, first working with Graydon and Foster and, and all of the greatest players in the world, pretty much, was was it not necessarily the tracks, but was it a network now? Because you you were in now. I mean, you were a A list vocalist now. Yeah, the phone began to ring. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and so uh, you know, people begin to call and say, "Would you like to sing on this or that?" Uh-huh. So that that um, that worked quite well. Uh, I uh, I personally wanted to tour with the band. Um, you know, David had a chance to begin producing Chicago, so David went one direction, uh, and uh, I thought that uh, it was a real shame that we did not take that band on the road and establish ourselves with what we could have been. I think it would have been one of the greatest bands of all time. But, uh, you know, everybody had their own personal agendas. Mm-hmm. And um, so there was a, a period while it did um, open doors for me. Uh, I wanted to be a performer. Uh, I did not do any of the writing on there. They were very clear that they had been writing all soon up on that record. But um, I wanted to do more and express myself. And, and uh, my inclination was to be a little bit more uh, rock, they were a little bit more slick, but yeah. that's just where we were. Uh, and so I uh, got a call from a good friend, uh, Bernie Levy. Bernie was uh, one of the founders of the Eagles. Yeah. And uh, he kept saying, why don't we, let's try writing some songs together and doing some things. And so I eventually took an opportunity, Bernie, and I started a different band uh, called Zoe. And uh, we actually had a good little group. We, Bernie, at that time, owned uh, Neil Young's studio in Topanga mm-hmm. and had bought Neil Young's house. And uh, we cut for quite a long time, did a lot of recording. Uh, Paul Lyon was a drummer. Paul's gone on to be a sure. great session player. In, in, uh, and uh, Jerry Chef. Uh, Jerry, not Jason, but Jerry, his dad was yeah. the bass player. That's right. So we, yeah. had a, we had a great band, good stuff, and great songs. But... Um, we did not release music. I kept saying, let's, we've recorded a lot of songs, let's make the record now. Uh-huh. I think at that time, No Eagle wanted to be the first Eagle to release a solo record. Okay. And Henley had not released a record, Bernie had not released a record. I think we were still waiting for the right timing. And um, I got a call from a friend Larry Williams. Mm-hmm. And uh, Larry said, uh, it's Larry Williams from the band Sea Wind. Right, and uh, they were 
I'm not going to continue with Pauline, but I'd be interested in uh, talking to the band about maybe doing something. And so I uh, took that opportunity and joined Larry and Bob Wilson and uh, the guys in CUN, and we started uh, exploring the possibility of putting a a band together. Now, wow. At first, we were thinking we'd continue as CUN, and uh, we'd be in rehearsing and then writing, and that led to another chapter. That's interesting. You know, Tommy, um, you know, one of our correspondents, uh, Mikhail Ingstrom from uh, Stock- ah. from Stockholm, uh, he has a question for you. And it has to do, I'm glad you're going into Seawind a little bit, because his question is, when you first met Bob Wilson from Seawind in the 80s, and before you had formed The Front, uh, did you ever go and record or perform with Bob and Seawind after Pauline had left the band? So did you ever, the question is, did you ever record as Seawind? We actually did four songs, if I remember right, four songs in the studio okay. that uh, they were writing for the next Seawind record, and uh, they, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a tenor, but Pauline can go even higher, yeah. and it was, uh, we decided that we wanted to work together, but I'm not sure those songs would have worked out. But during that time, uh, you know, Jerry and the horn section began working a lot. And actually, really what happened is Bob and I decided, Bob said, hey, look, I've got this idea for a song. And um, it kind of came together really quickly. And then Bob had another song. And then Bob had another song. Yeah. And um, I would write the lyrics and melodies and stuff. And, and uh, we began deciding that we were writing some things. And um, Larry and I were writing some things. And, I, and the songs kind of fell into two buckets. Hmm. Um, some of the stuff that Larry and others and I would write, they seemed specifically for the C-Win new thing we were doing. Right. And then everything that Bob and I were writing seemed like they were maybe destined for a life of their own. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had had a number of record labels ask me, would I do a solo record, a Christian record, do this or that? Uh, and, uh, you know, I was not interested in doing a, a typical uh Let's just make some money, Christian record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, if if there was something to be done, if you could express yourself, if you could make a statement, I was open to that. And we got approached by a record label that uh, said, "Look, if you'd be interested in doing this, we would let you have a. You could write what you want to write and say what you want to say, and we wouldn't make you just have to sing, you know, four hymns sure. and like yeah, that. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, and uh, so." We did. Uh, Bob and I decided there was an opportunity for us to do a solo project apart from uh, Sea Wind, and it just turned out that uh, you know Larry played on it, and then uh, I was introduced to Dan Huff, and Dan Huff played on it, and a number of people played, and it it became a it had a life of its own. Yeah. And I got to say, to this day, I get so many people that uh, write me or email me about the front. Yeah, we we travel through uh, I guess what eighty five or so through Europe, yeah, and uh, and uh, played uh, just a few dates, but uh, it was a great time, a great experience, and uh, uh, we probably would have continued on with the front uh, were it not for the fact that our poor record label just couldn't figure out how to get the records in the stores. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it was just kind of like acting like amateur night in Dixie for a while. Yeah. And so we just decided, uh, that, um, it wasn't, uh, a place we wanted to stay. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, hey, Tommy, Eddie, uh, let's take our first break and let's check out a track by The Front from their 1985 release. And this is a song called It's Hard to Take. And this is from our guest today, Tommy Funderburk on Inside Music Cast.
Well, I remember when, you know, the first the album first came out and, you know, it was some of the best music I've heard in a long, long time. I mean, I was raised sort of in CCM music, but when this broke apart and had a had some nuances that were sort of gospel, but they weren't. And uh, it was it was totally fresh and it was it was really uh, it was some of the, some of your best work you've done. I, I can see how you're rather proud of that. And, and a lot of people still probably comment on on music of the front because uh, it was it was very uh, innovative music of the time. Well, you know what was what was. I was especially proud of the fact that we had a certain accomplishments. That uh, uh, I was kind of watching technology grow, and I knew that there was this thing called a compact disc that was coming. Kind of, this is ancient technology, ancient concept now. But uh, I, I wanted uh, to be the first uh, to ever come out with a compact disc, and so I had a relationship to JBC. Yeah, and we actually the front was actually. Uh, the first, uh, I guess you would call it the first band on a Christian record label to ever have a compact disc. Wow. And, um, yeah, we were the first. I, I knew I'd, I knew I beat out a couple of other people because I had them specially ship it from mm-hmm. Japan, wow. from the National Lab, to get it here so we could be the first. And that opened doors for us. And then I was really pleased that Contemporary Christian Music Magazine uh, gave us the, they uh, gave us a quote that the, I guess we were the last album that they reviewed for whatever year it was, mm-hmm. and they gave us a quote that the uh, the last would be first, and the first is the front. So they gave us the, we were the best album of that 1984, 1985, yeah. some of that season. Very, very cool. And it just was a challenge that, uh, you know, I watched, I, I, I understood the Christian music space from uh, having worked with Andre, been around the block, I just did not want to become a stereotype mm-hmm. and have to uh, try to make money for people that were just trying to be big fish in a small pond. And I thought that uh, I, I took seriously some quotes from Martin Luther. He said that if you want to be real, you got to be in the front. Uh, so I call our band. I call uh, our band the front. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I decided that we would. Uh, it's one thing to be uh, a big fish in a small pond. But I felt strongly that if you unplug from society and you just you're making some money and you got a nice living, you can be on the you know the whatever it is, the Channel Forty, Top Forty, you know the Christian music TV shows. That's not a, a, a bad thing, but I just felt like I was called to just compete in the marketplace and mm-hmm. just. Uh, uh, you know, if I can't write something as good as other people, then you know I don't deserve to have a hit. And we just decided we would move from being just uh, in the uh, on a Christian record label. And fortunately, I was uh, singing a, a date for the band Starship, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the people who were the uh, the A and R people from RCA happened to be at the session. And they said, well, Tommy, what are you doing these days? And I said, well, I'm looking for a new home for some new music that my band is writing. And uh, I played them four songs that would have been the next front record. Mm-hmm. And RCA offered me a deal. And uh, we decided that uh, we would make it official that Larry would join the band. and We would uh, grow and become something a little different. Uh it, Still, Bob and I were writing the majority of the songs Larry and I wrote, but it was uh, almost as if the front grew up and moved from Refuge Records to RCA Records. Yeah. And 
that's how we got to the band What If. Hey, well, speaking of uh, What If, let's take a break and uh, let's check out a track from the 1987 self-titled album What If that features past Inside Music cast guest Larry Williams and Bob Wilson, both from Seawind, along with our guest today, Tommy Funderburk. This is When Right is Wrong on Inside Music Cast.
Going back to the front, on your, on your European tours, you used uh, Buddy Nuanez and, and Ken Wilde and I think John Andrew yeah. Schreiner on keys. And what are your recollections of, of those sessions and tours? Well, we had so much fun. That's the first thing. We had a great time. Uh, and uh, my recollection is that John is, the most, is a great keyboard player and was fantastic live. But uh, we can always count on him to be late everywhere he went. <laughs> and uh, Bud and everybody else were just great. It was uh, it was exciting. Uh, we realized then that uh, you know at that time, up until the early '80s, uh, most of the world's music uh, that had been promoted was coming from the United States, and we assumed certain things. So we assumed, well, we're going to go to Europe. You know, we'll just get there, and then we'll pick up our gear when we get there. And we realized that they did not even have a DX7 in Sweden. Wow. So we couldn't, we had to, like, go by hook or crook and put all this gear together. And uh, it was really just a great time of meeting some good Christian friends, um, people that really cared. I have a fond memory of playing in uh, Norway in a rainstorm thinking that we should be electrocuted any second. But uh, I, I swear I have people that uh, send me emails. That, you know, Tommy, I was at that thing in the pouring rain, cheering the front on, <laughs> and we liked it. I think we played with Larry Norman at that time. That was amazing. Wow. So, yeah, those were really great times. The front was uh, well-received throughout uh, Norway and Sweden. And uh, sometimes I wish we'd do toured more, but... Uh, Life has its way of taking you other places. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, Tommy, let's talk about King of Hearts. And uh, tell me how you met Bruce Geich originally, because uh, from what I understand, when you two guys met, you really hit it off right away. Yeah, we did. You know, uh, after I did The Front, we, we did that record, What If? Yeah. That was on, uh, that was on RCA, right. which uh, I was very happy about what we were doing. Uh, but uh, RCA... As soon as the ink was dry on the contract, was sold to GE, and then spun off to BMG. And I remember we had to go to some kind of introduction at the Beverly Hills Hotel, <laughs> where the new people from BMG were going to meet all the artists that were on RCA. And uh, I remember that I guess they parted ways with Hawk. And this is this is the music business, and their infinite wisdom. They they decided to let Hollow Notes go somewhere else. They let other people go other places, and they took on a bunch of bands that uh, didn't do so well. I, I felt like we had given them a good album, What If? But um, we, uh, I, I will say one thing about What If, the What If record. Nick Kozowski, great engineer. Mm-hmm. We just had great times working with Nick, and uh, we poured our heart and soul into that record. Uh, Michael Landau played on it. Yep. Nathan played on it. Great stuff. Uh, but RCA decided that um, they were going to teach us a lesson. I uh, had friends. I was friends with uh, girls in Heart, uh-huh. and uh, Denny Carmasi was a drummer at the time. They they asked us to be their opening act. Oh wow! And so we were going to open for Heart and travel. And I remember clearly being in Westwood, California, one day, and I got a call. And I got a beeper. That's back when you had beepers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Larry called me and said get to the phone quick. And I called him and he said, yeah, man, we're going to go out with heart. Wow. And then by the time I could get home, 
there had been a change that uh, the head of the label had gotten into a fight with our manager. <laughs> and he told us that, um, you know, we're going to put you, we're going to break you through MTV, not touring. And I, and, and I said, it's, it's freaking hard. <laughs> okay? Yeah. They're like sold out all across the world. Yeah. And what's the problem with that? Yeah. And their response was, who are you? How would you like to just get off the effing label? Wow. Short temper. And I thought, <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, okay. And so they said, um, here's the deal. Uh, as punishment, we're going to take your first single, and uh, it's going to be dead on arrival. So our single that we cut, the $75,000 video, and had everything there, they wouldn't support it. Oh, and, man. you know, to teach us a lesson, we can, everybody's got horror stories, but that was pretty disappointing. Right. And so I realized that uh, that it was not uh, going to happen, that first record. Uh, and uh, we began writing for the second record of What If, and I became friends with Martin Page. And Martin and I uh, began writing some songs to contribute to the What If record, and we wrote a song called It's Not Enough. And uh, Mickey Thomas heard that, and Mickey wanted to record that, and so that got on the Starship record. And we began writing, and and I, I kept thinking, well, we'll do another What If record. But I was in a session uh, at Capitol Records, and um, maybe it was uh, Richard Marks' date. I guess it was Richard Marks and Kevin Cronin from REO and myself and Richard were in the studio, and uh, Bruce introduced himself to me, and I said, hey, man, we should write a song together. And so uh, he said, I've got the start of a song. And I um, got it, and um, when I went home, I played it at night, and it just kind of came to me. Um, I called the song King of Hearts. It was when Roy Orbison had passed away, Mm -hmm. and Roy was on my mind. And I remember listening to him uh, when I was young, listening to him on the radio. So we wrote a song called King of Hearts, and then from there, Bruce told me that um, he worked with a a manager, uh, Alan Kovac, and uh, Alan was, since the Eagles are not around, Alan was trying to put a band together. So uh, he asked, would I like to be in a group with Timothy Schmidt and uh, Bruce and me? And we filled out the band with uh, Kelly Kagey. Kelly was uh, from Night Ranger, lead singer in Night Ranger. Yeah. And so the idea was that all four are songwriters, all four are lead vocalists, and maybe it could be like, you know, the Junior Eagles or something, you know. And we put that, we, we uh, began writing, we thought, you know, if we can actually write and not be like the monkeys or something, we, you know, this might could be something. So we, we began writing and um, we decided that we actually enjoyed being together and we called ourselves King of Hearts. I just had a quick question for you when you were talking about, uh, you know, the possibility that you uh, could have toured with Hart. Was that during the the Bad Animals tour dur- during that time? Probably. Right? Their capital, yeah, during that time. Okay. That's what I thought. Probably 80, 86 or yeah. so. Mm-hmm. Like okay. Yeah. You know, when you did some work with, uh, of course, in 89 with, with um, on the first album of King of Hearts, you know, it's, it really, what you're saying is uh, it's, it's, it's perfect because it's a great example of great songwriting and the musicianship. I mean, I mean, you had guys, I mean, like Richard Marks. I mean, it wasn't C.J. Vanston, Bill Champlin. I mean, these guys all contributed in some way, somehow to, to uh, this first album. Is that correct? 
Yeah, we really were self-contained. CJ played. Yeah, CJ played keyboards. Yeah. And Bruce and stuff, you know, overdubbed and did a lot of things. But CJ should have been part of the band. I love CJ. And um, we we felt like uh, we were writing some things that were legitimate at the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, the music business is all there's always drama. And um, we got into uh, a challenge that we, I think, originally signed on Christmas. And uh, one day... We got a call from Alan, our manager, and he said, uh, I'm flying to New York to talk about uh, the tour. And then uh, we got a call five hours later, and he goes, we're off of Chrysalis. I said, what? We're, we're <laughs> mixing our record, and now we have no record label? He goes, don't worry, I got you on this other record label. And so we, we started into a series of drama, record contracts, negotiation, and stuff. And um, Timothy, who was in the band, this is a great story. This is one. This is one, This is now. This is a great story right here. Timothy uh, was in the band, and we got a call, and I answered, and they said, "Who is it?" They said, "Well, it's uh, Thomas Don." And so Timothy got a call from Don Henley that they were going to put the band back together. The Eagles were getting back together. Yeah. <laughs> so what could we do? We're not going to say don't join the Eagles. So <laughs> we had to go through leaving member and Timothy left and George Hawkins came in. So we had to redo a lot. And it's just taking a long time. Uh, and unfortunately for Timothy at that time, they didn't get the Eagles together then. So it was kind of sad for everybody. Yeah. But um, we put the record out and um, we, we, we got to a point that we were about to release the record. And uh, it just all fell apart. Contracts, negotiations, and stuff. And um, George needed to go somewhere, and Kelly needed to go somewhere. And because they weren't principals, they weren't the writers of, of everything at that time, We it just fell apart. And we, um, uh, they did contribute to the first record, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. they, they wrote songs on the first record, but it just kind of fell apart. And Bruce and I decided that we enjoyed writing together, and we continued to... Uh, do it. We decided that we were going. This is the first time that I had. It seemed like a good idea. Let's just do it ourselves. And so we started a series of uh, writing and doing stuff, and we finally self-released the record. It did not get the support. It did not get the opportunity that it should have gotten, could have gotten. And um, that's kind of where Bruce and I began to write. It's just a, a duo. Hey guys, let's go back to 1994 and let's uh, check out a track from the King of Hearts self-titled release. And this is a track called Don't Call My Name from our guest today, Tommy Funderburk on Inside Music Cast. I don't know if I can pay that price 
into your eyes again Living on the hope that you'd be there for me But now, darling, I can't tell you how I feel Because if I could, I swear I'd give in to you So if you're looking for a lover Until the end of time You're the one who walked away Living on the hope that you'd come back to me But now, darling, I
tell us about the the West Coast All Stars. I mean, it's an acapella vocal group that features uh, four uh, respected singers, including yourself. You got Joseph Williams in there, and Bobby Kimball, Jason Chef from uh, sh- Chicago, and uh, you recorded naturally in '98, and it was uh, basically a, a recording of acapella covers, right? Yeah, we were. Uh, uh, good friend Joey Cardone, who's a great producer, called and said there is a project. Uh-huh. And uh, would I like to be a part of it? And I said, yeah. And the idea was that uh, uh, the record label had a list of songs that they they enjoyed hearing. Uh, several of us, Bobby or me, you know, during the early '80s, it was either you know Bobby Campbell and me and Bill Champlin, or Tom Kelly and me and Richard Page. There was a group of three of us that did all kinds of records. We got to sing on so many records. Yeah. And a lot of people enjoyed that sound. And the, the uh, record label asked, would we do uh, uh, an acapella record? And I thought, yeah, we'll start writing some acapella songs. But they said, no, we want you to record greatest hits of the 70s. <laughs> so <laughs> we uh, we all picked some songs that we enjoyed. Yeah. And we had a fun time going in there and just kind of doing a, a street doo-wop kind of acapella version yeah and uh had a lot of fun with it that's cool that was a fun project yeah and in 2005 you know uh frontiers um uh, record label it's an italian company actually they re- they re- uh, released your uh, your first uh, debut album anything for you and uh it featured some songs that were written by you and guys like uh bruce and michael thompson and Greg Matheson. Um, tell us about this project. It's always, it must have been a, as they say, you know, the, the cobbler's children have no shoes. Making shoes for yourself and recording your own first debut album, it must be so incredibly challenging. Was this one the same as that? Well, you know, look, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very disappointed with that record. Okay. Part of it is just my availability. Yep. In 2002, I started a record label gotcha. called so- Sovereign Artist. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And uh, we had signed the band Heart, a number of artists, and I was working full-time on the record label. It was my company. They asked me if I'd be interested in doing this record. Uh, they obviously had different ideas about how the record should go. Yeah. I really appreciate them putting up with me. Uh, I did not give them my best, and I think the record suffered from it. And uh, I probably have not listened to the record ever. <laughs> really? Interesting. You know, it's... it's uh, so that's, that's basically all I've got to say for that. Yep. <laughs> Up, ups and downs of music. Uh, I do have one question, another question from Mikael, and uh, he brings up a very interesting uh, question. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you ended up working with uh, Kazu Matsui on the Kazu Matsui project called Standing in the Wings? I've taken a Standing couple... Standing in the Wings, yeah. Man, great, good stuff. I listened to some of that music, and uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, that was just, uh, you know... From the days of airplay, the phone started ringing, and uh, people would call and ask if I'd sing on their records, and I was happy to do it. It was just one of those things that I had no idea what I was getting into, but uh, there were some good songs, and that turned out to be a very special song. I mean, that took me probably two hours to do. That was was that. Wow, that's interesting. You know, you know, Tommy, this this is a music business is 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 crazy, and. Taking a look back and how it's changed over the years and its ups and downs and and um, you know what do you see as to where we are right now in the industry? Because when we last uh, in preparation for this interview, we were sort of talking a little bit about your, what you're doing right now, and uh, you're a very strong advocate for musicians' rights and uh, and you're working on a couple projects right now. It's uh, and they have a company called Muset. 
And uh, it's got some interesting technologies that you're introducing and developing. Take a few minutes here and, and tell us what this is all about, because I found it very, very interesting what you're doing now. Well, I appreciate the chance to talk about music, because that's, that's my love at this moment. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I started the record label Sovereign Artist in 2002, yeah. partly because I had been uh, on a tour in Japan and I in uh, the late 90s, and they were saying, oh, this thing called the Internet going to be big. <laughs> and I thought, uh, yeah, that's it, the Internet. So we were, as sovereign artists, we were promoting heavily on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And when the industry was selling about 1% on the Internet, we were selling 20%. But wow. what I did not understand is that we were really introducing ourselves to a lot of people who were adopting new technology. Okay. And the new technology was, how do I get your music for free? Yep. So... I um, began getting calls from managers of bands about how come these people are hearing our music in China? How come yeah. they're hearing our music in, in Russia? Uh-huh. How come they're getting it in South America? I have no idea. Yeah. So that opened my eyes to the scope and the, the, uh, the real scale of the Internet. And so um, I actually took some meetings with early Napster, early Blockster, early Morpheus guys to see uh-huh. Uh, if they would respond to an artist, hey, this is not the man, this is not the industry that you're attacking. I'm a songwriter. I put my money into into sovereign artists. Yeah. You're, you're eating into my living. Right. And uh, the approach at that time was that uh, if it's on the Internet, it should be free. <laughs> and so I... I, I thought for a while that it might just be that that's the end of the music business as we know it, but um, I started watching the music business try to come back, and they tried to fight piracy, and they tried to stop the Internet. They tried to stop downloading. Yeah. And, and I thought, it's not necessarily the fans' fault that the music industry did not understand that if they had cooperated with Napster or one of those services, you might could have built an incredible distribution platform. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But they did not do it. And so <laughs> I watched the music industry spend over $200 million suing individuals, suing college students, suing librarians, suing everybody mm-hmm. to collect nothing, only to get a bad reputation. Right. And I watched piracy grow. So I was fortunate that somebody reached out to me uh, that was uh, a friend in technology and said, look, there is technology that you can identify people that are downloading your music. You can identify downloads in real time. And I thought, now, if I can identify people downloading my music, then I could say hello. So we spent uh, the past four years designing technology growing a team of good people, uh, and uh, I, I now have a company called Music, M-U-Z-I-T, that uh, I think is a great alternative to what has gone before, mm-hmm. and I think you're going to see music grow pretty rapidly this year. We've been under the radar because I wanted to get it right, and uh, you know, in the beginning, I was offered the chance to test the waters with uh, the catalog of Frank Zappa. Wow. And I was not sure. I was not sure if anybody downloaded Frank Zappa. Yeah. yeah. But I, but I found out that Frank was um, downloaded in the United States over peer to peer networks. Now, that's code word for not paid for. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Right. Ninety six thousand times a day. Oh my gosh! 
Wow. <laughs> so I thought, whoa, if they download Frank's catalog 96,000 times a day, uh, how much more are they downloading other people? Oh, so right. I now see that uh, iTunes may sell about three and a half million songs a day. And uh, I would like to sell three and a half million songs a day. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. yeah. But people download over peer-to-peer networks, sometimes 11 billion with a B, yeah. 11 billion songs a day. That's where the music industry went. And we have now have a technology that is able to, if we represent you, if you're in our search engine, all artists, all copyright owners, then we uh, market, friendly market. Hi, it's us. Here's where you get the music right from me. So that's what we do. That's interesting. So basically, it's uh, you're utilizing the networks that were once counterproductive. You're trying to turn them around to create a relationship that basically develops a new uh, business partner, a purchaser. Yeah, I, th- I think today that you have to accept the fact yeah. that basically every song, every movie is all over the Internet. Yep. Yeah. So I, I don't like to say that you should look at your music as a lost leader. Mm-hmm. I'm a songwriter. I hate to say, here, just have everything for free. But the reality is that most people do have access to everything you've ever done. And uh, uh, you need to either learn to swim or you sink. Yeah. And so what we realize is that uh, not everybody who uh, downloads your music is a pirate is an evil person. Mm-hmm. Many mm-hmm. of them are fans. Many of them are possible consumers. Right. So what we do is we build relationships. We use our technology to be able to identify you as you download. Uh, uh, we represent uh, the band of Mavericks, uh, Martina McBride. We're, we're growing with uh, who we represent. And as you download our music, then we're able to say, Hi, it's, it's the Mavericks. I see you enjoy our music on BitTorrent. You know, you don't have to go around the world to get music. Click here. Here's my link directly to me. Yeah. And we facilitate that transaction. Huh. And we recognize that it's not just the song, but it's the relationship with the artist. Yeah. Could I get your T-shirts? Could I get your tour? Could I get your tickets? Right. Could I get your record? You know, your relationship. Could I say hello to you? Very cool. Um, well, it, it sounds I, we're, we're going to have to stay up with that because that sounds like a really uh, really cool platform you've developed. And I guess my well, other question... it is good, and I, w- I just want to say that I'm excited that uh, as as uh, I was the artist in the beginning uh-huh. that had this wacky idea, and uh, the music industry said it'll never happen. Sony rejected it. Universal rejected it. Three times to New York to present to them for them to blow me off. The RIAA wanted to stop me. Uh, uh, you know, people said it could never happen. Uh-huh. But as I continue to push and grow, uh, we had certain really good guys. Two of the the a good friend who was the uh, head of social media for Hewlett Packard uh-huh. and the head of all digital development for Hewlett Packard left Hewlett Packard to come and join the team. Wow! And then most recently, we've had uh, a great friend, Mike Hennessy. Yeah. Mike Hennessy was the former chief technology officer for Intuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, they built uh, TurboTax stuff. Mike is able to do massive uh, amounts of data transactions. And so what we're able to do now for artists is to identify where your fans are. Where are they downloading your music? What songs do they like? Right. We know their zip code. We know the areas. We know where you should book your tours. We know data what they like. They like these songs, not those songs. 
So it's a tremendous big data play before we ever say hello to anybody. And then when we say hello to people, it's just how great an opening line do you have? Exactly. Hi, uh-huh. is me. You want my house? I mean, whatever you want to say. You know, I don't think anybody's going to respond to, hey, it's, uh, it's me, Tommy Funderburg. Here's your lawsuit. Right. But if I said, hey, it's Tommy Funderburg, and I've got some really cool stuff, if you're open to it, here's, here's my world. Right. Welcome to my world. That's what we do for everybody. Very cool. And I think over this year, we've now raised quite a bit of money. We've got some industry. We've got some backing. And uh, we have decided, rather than to approach the music industry initially, we have decided to go straight to the artist because our customers are artists who own the content. Yep. Artists understand that it is not about alienating your fans. It's about making things available to them. And so we are, we are really, I'm banking the rest of my career on the fact that uh, I have come across something that can uh, be a new business model for all musicians. Mm, that's really that's fantastic. That's yeah. really, really cool. Tommy Funderburg, you've been involved in some groundbreaking music growing up and uh, moving to L.A., working with the best of the best and, and uh, the music that we've gone over here, and now you're on to groundbreaking technology to protect the musician and to create relationships. Thanks so much for being with us, Tommy. We really appreciate your, your time with us. Look, it's been a real blast. I really appreciate it going back in time. And um, please do keep um, watching for music, M-U-Z-I-T.com. Oh, Sounds definitely. Great. We're going to check that out. Thanks again, Tommy. Thank you, man. All right, take Bye, care. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Tommy Funderburg for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Mikhail Ingstrom, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Unilon for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. It's nice when you play cool. It's nice when you play cool.